Weddings are special events in our life. They are a celebration of life and love and commitment. And I always, when I talk to young people, especially those that I'm getting ready to marry, I always say, choose carefully. Because this individual that you choose as a partner with you in marriage, if you choose to be married, this is the second most important decision of your entire life. This individual will shape you. They will help you. They will be a partner with you. And they will probably have more influence on you than anyone else. Now, obviously, the first most important decision in your life is that what do we do with the claims of Jesus Christ when he asks us, who do you think I am? We believe so strongly in marriage here at Harborside that we have invested a considerable amount of time and money and effort and resources in providing a state-of-the-art facility to do weddings. And you will see that as you come in or as you leave today. It's still in the process of being uh, built. But it's not just there so that we can do weddings. In addition to that, we are developing a program of six different sessions where we can help prepare people for marriage. And as Pastor Kurt always says, we don't just do weddings, we prepare people for marriage. And indeed, that is our goal, not just for the people and our friends here at Harborside, but for our community to, tell, to try to help and teach them of how important it is when one chooses another to be a partner in life. Well, for those of you who are married, do you remember back the day that you got married? See, that brings a smile to your face, doesn't it? Here's a, a wedding. This is a beach wedding, and at first I thought that was Pastor Kurt, but then I looked, and it wasn't. And I looked closer. This is the reluctant groom. I hope, that, I hope that wasn't you when you got married. And then here's a mother-in-law. <laughs> now, mother-in-laws are never too happy at weddings because I don't care how important that son or daughter that is marrying their child is. They're never good enough, right, for their son or their daughter and so that's what usually is their demeanor. This is a, uh, a couple that couldn't afford a limousine, and so they decided to get a, uh, a secondary thing where they could uh, ride on back to the wedding. Well, today we're going to take a look at a very significant event in the Scriptures. It's found for us in John chapter 2, and we're going to be reading the first 11 verses. If you'd like to follow, I'm going to have it on the screen here in just a moment, or you can follow on your phone, or you can follow on your Bibles. You know, uh, several years ago, we used to always make this announcement, make sure you put your phones away before the church service starts. Now we say, make sure you get your phones out before the church service starts. So, John chapter 2. This is chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. It's always a good idea to invite Jesus to your wedding, but it's an even better idea to invite Jesus into your marriage. Now, weddings of the first century were quite different than what we have today. This is an artist's depiction of what a wedding of the first century may have looked like, or at least part of that. The ceremony would have gone something like this. The father of the bride would have, during around noontime, early in the afternoon, there would have been a, a luncheon. 
And then he would take his bride, or in his case, his daughter, the bride, and he would parade her through town. And all the people would look at her. There would be a canopy over her. There would be music that were playing. People would clap, and they would give their congratulations. And then they would proceed to the home of the groom. And once they got to the home of the groom, the ceremony would take place. And after the ceremony took place, now the bride and groom would go back and repeat this process going through town and uh, receiving the congratulations and the adulation of the people that were there. These weddings took place in small towns. They weren't people uh, around us like we have here in the Clearwater, Pinellas, and Hillsborough County areas. These were very small uh, cities and towns and villages. And so therefore, everybody in the town would pile in and everybody would come out to see what was happening in these weddings. So they were great celebration events. Now let me ask you a question. Does the idea of Jesus spending his time going to a party fit your idea of who he is? Because just three days before this, Jesus has been baptized. Now he's beginning to start his ministry. There are disciples to call. There are teachings to be given. There are people who need to be healed. There are injustices that need to be addressed. But yet he takes the time to spend to go to the celebration of a wedding. There is a principle that is involved here. And here is the principle. Jesus enters into the culture of his day so that he can minister to the people of that culture. He doesn't buy in to the culture. He doesn't adopt to the culture. He enters in and transcends the culture so that he is able to communicate and identify with the people and share with them the good news. Now, when we look at this several uh, weeks ago, I think a couple of weeks, maybe three or four weeks ago now, Harborside Church did this very thing. Normally we have our Easter egg hunt here at the church, and that's a great event, and it's always a wonderful time for a fellowship and so forth. But this year, we took that event to downtown Safety Harbor and combined it with the Primavera Music Festival. And we said, we want to take ourselves into the culture. We want to have people see who we are. We want to see how much we have enjoy having a wholesome, good time, how much we love Christ, and how we want to share with them this good news. In addition to teaching in the synagogue, which obviously Jesus did, Jesus also went to weddings. Jesus fixed breakfast for people. Jesus uh, went with the tax collectors. He had people over and went to their house for dinner. He entered into the culture of his day. So Jesus and his disciples are at this wedding. Now, it doesn't specifically say, but just prior to this, he's baptized by John the Baptist. Can you imagine John the Baptist being at a formal wedding? <laughs> that would be some event, wouldn't it? John chapter 2 and verse 3, an event happens and a problem occurs at the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine. Now, invariably, something almost always goes wrong at weddings. Have you ever noticed that? And sometimes it's my fault. <laughs> Several years ago, I was an uh, interim pastor over at Lake Wales, and they had asked me to come and do a wedding. I didn't really know the couple. They had done their premarital counseling with someone else, and I only went over there on weekends to uh, speak for them. And I said, okay, sure, I'll do the wedding. And their names were Austin and Mary. 
Well, it just so happens that Carol and I have been friends with and are still friends with a couple from Vero Beach, and their names are Austin and Rachel. And so, you know where I'm going, don't you, already? You can fill in the rest of the story. And so, the day, of the, the day of the ceremony comes, I stand before the people, I give the normal greeting to them, and I say, ladies and gentlemen, we are here today to grand celebration of this wedding between Austin and Rachel. And I hear the congregation kind of do what you do, kind of laughing, and I thought, what did I say? Did I say something wrong? And the bride is looking at me. And she smiles and she says, that's not my name. <laughs> I apologized profusely and remembered her name was Mary the rest of the time. Another event that happened, and this one wasn't my fault. We were in Vero Beach and I was doing a wedding for a couple. The guy's name was Mark. That wasn't his real name because I don't want to be sued. But anyway, his name was Mark. And as the ceremony began, it was a, a noon ceremony, and we have a stage much like you had here, and but, but the lights were extremely bright, and they were really hot, and the stage is probably half as tall as what you have here, maybe two feet tall or so, and so we're doing the ceremony, and I get to the part where the vowels are, and I look over at Mark, and Mark is sweating like crazy. I mean, the, the beads of perspiration just coming down over his face, and his shirt is all sweaty, and, and the tux is all full of, you know, yucky-looking stuff. And I said, Mark, are you okay? He said, uh, and he does this. We're standing, like, right here. He goes, uh, no. I couldn't make this up, folks. He goes to the edge of the stage and falls off the stage. It was only about two feet high. I didn't get hurt. But we had an altar down there. It was about 18 inches high or so. He hits this altar, flips over the altar, and his feet, he's got cowboy boots on, his feet <laughs> land on top of the altar. <laughs> Passed out, colder than a fish. What do you do when that happens and you're the pastor? <laughs> so I said, ladies and gentlemen, there will be a brief pause in the ceremony <laughs> while we revive the groom and see if the bride still wants to go through with a wedding. Now, for those of you who are engaged and getting ready to be married, all those stories mean nothing. There's nothing going to happen at your wedding at all. It's going to be perfectly fine and perfect. Right. So what do you do when the wine runs out? What do you do when something happens at the wedding unexpected? Well, it's what you call a social faux pas. Isn't that a great word? A faux pas. It's a French word. It means you messed up. And so here they are, and they are humiliated because they don't have enough to serve the people who have come to attend the wedding. So what are they going to do? What do you do when the wine runs out? Well, Mary enlists the help of her son. And she says to him, they have no more wine. Now, she doesn't tell him what to do. She doesn't specifically say anything about what she, he, should happen. She just gives him the facts. She says, the wine has run out. It's very similar to those of you who have teenagers might be able to understand this. Your teenage son comes to you, your daughter comes to you and says, Dad, you know, my car really needs a lot of work on it, a lot of repair. She doesn't say anything else. That's it. So what you want to say is, well, why don't you get a job and earn some money? Then you can pay for it. 
But you don't say that. You say, oh, honey, I love you. Right, Kristen? I love you. you can, I'll, I'll pay for your repairs. Now, for those of you who have teenagers, I've got bad news for you as well. When they get to be adults, it doesn't change. We have three adult sons, and occasionally we go out to eat with them, and an amazing thing happens every single time we go out to eat with them. They always forget their wallets. Always. It's one of those great coincidences of life. They never remember. But the implication here is strong for Mary. What she is basically saying is, Jesus, I don't know how to tell you what to do. But I know who you are. I was there when, you, when I was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he said to me that the child that you're going to bear is going to be the Son of God. I was here when you grew up. I saw how you treated people. I saw how you grew. I saw the things in your life. I know who you are. I don't need to tell you what to do. The only thing I'm going to tell you is the problem. And isn't that what we do? In verse 4, Jesus responds, and he says this, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Jesus responds in a way that we as Americans in the 21st century would say that is rather impolite, that is rather disrespectful, and we don't understand why Jesus would say something like that. Can you imagine, ladies, if your son were in the house with you and you said, son, would you take the garbage out, please? And he looked at you and said, woman, (laughs) what does that have to do with me? (laughs) My hour has not yet come. Well, I'm pretty sure your hour is getting ready to come right now. But at the first century, woman was not that type of of term. It was a term more like madam or lady or something of that nature. It was not a disrespectful term. Did you know that in the entire Gospels, Jesus never calls Mary his mother? Now, other people do. In fact, in this narrative, it says, your mother. Other people, and and it was obvious that she definitely was his biological mother. But there's something that is significant that is happening here. It is a theological shift that is happening here. Now, I'm sure when he was growing up and when he was a child, he might have called her mother or mom or whatever the, the term of endearment might have been. But now there is a shift that is taking place here. It is a shift from mother to woman. Now, Jesus would never disrespect his mother. We know that. We know that he loved his mother supremely. We know he would have done anything for his mother. We know that he cared for her. At this time, he is approximately 30 years old. And we know that his father is not there. And so Joseph probably has died at an earlier age. And she has been a single parent. And for those of you who are single parents, I would say this to you. There is really nothing harder in the world than being a single parent. Now, this is an aside. It has nothing to do with the message. But I would say to you that as a church, we need to rally behind those who are single parents and be there to support and encourage and be there for them. 
because it is a tough job. And so Mary would have been a single parent for at least some part of her life. And so we know that Jesus had great respect for her. But Jesus, at this point of his life, is moving his relationship from his mother. Now, she'll always be his mother, obviously. But he's moving his relationship and changing Mary from mother to woman. Later, when his mother and brothers come to see him and someone says to him, your mother and brothers are outside, they'd like to talk to you. He says, who are my mother and brothers but those who do the will of the Father? He is starting the journey of a cru- that is going to lead to a crucifixion, and Mary understands and knows now that he has a higher purpose than just being her son. He has a different relationship now than just being the son. He is moving now to not just being a son, but to being a savior. And so Mary must understand that family relationships are now going to be secondary to the purpose for which he was born, to that which he has been called to earth to be, which is the Savior of mankind. And so Mary must now respond to him, not just as a loving mother, but as a seeking Savior. So let's look at what she does. And so his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Mary exhibits faith. She's had to adjust her relationship now from a son to a savior. She moves now from being a mother of Jesus to being a follower of Christ. She knows she can no longer tell him what to do, but she now must respond in faith to who he is. And she leaves not knowing exactly what he's going to do. She just knows that he is who he says that he is, and he'll do the right thing, no matter what it is. And that's kind of what we do as followers of Christ. I don't know how Jesus is going to handle some of the problems that I have, but I have trust in him. I have faith in him. We don't try to negotiate with Jesus. We don't try to tell Jesus what to do. We don't try to bargain with him. We just say, Lord, tell me what I need to do. And I'll follow in your footpaths. And so Mary says, whatever he tells you to do, if you do it, it'll be the right thing. Now let's look at verses 6 and 7, which really are very significant in this story. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. There is a lot of significance in verses 6 and 7. First of all, he does not say to them, go find the old empty wine bottles and fill them up with water. He says, these are the jars I want you to fill up. There are significance in all of these words. These six stone jars which are used for ceremonial washing. Six in Scripture is the number of mankind. It's the number of imperfection. The Jews at this time have been following the law. They've been following the covenant. And part of that covenant relationship are several things. Part of it is going to the synagogue, which is fine. Part of it is the sacrificial system where they sacrificed animals as for the forgiveness of their sins and to blot them out. 
part of that is a bunch of do's and don'ts. And by the time that Jesus has arrived on the scene, there are literally books and books of do's and don'ts. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. There are dietary restrictions. And there are ceremonial washings. There are many ceremonial washings. Washing before you eat. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. Washing when you take your sacrifices to the temple. Washing before you go in. Washing all these different kind of, of things. And so he says, I want you to fill these six stone water jars, the kind that is used by the Jews in the old system, in the system of the law, in the system of the covenant. I want you to fill those up with water. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with waters. Listen to this. So they filled them to the brim. The Jewish people were under this old covenant law, and Jesus says, I am going to bring you something new. This particular scripture, this particular story is a bridge story. It's moving from the Old Testament to the new. It's moving from the old covenant to the new. It's moving from the law to grace. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 17. For the law, the ceremonial washing, the stone jars that needed to be filled with water so that you could be ceremonially clean, the law was given through Moses. Nothing wrong with it. That's what helped them to get along and know who God was until this time. However, grace, the unmerited love of God, grace and truth came not through the law, not through the old covenant. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is confirming that he is moving from the old law into the era of grace and truth. We have an Old Testament story of God changing the water, and it's found for us in this verse, and it says to us, the Lord said to Moses, this is the story of Moses appearing before the Pharaoh, before he, he's trying to let the people go out of Egypt. It, it's found for us in Exodus 7. And it says, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over what? The waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs. That's water. And this is what's happened. And they will turn to blood. And blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. In the Old Testament, when the miracle turned water into blood, it was a symbol and a sign of judgment. God is getting ready to bring down judgment upon the Pharaoh and his people if they don't let the people go. In the New Testament, <laughs> he doesn't turn the water into blood. He's later going to shed his blood. He turns the water into wine. And wine is a symbol in the New Testament of joy and grace and the Holy Spirit. And he says, I am going to fill these things up and I am going to abundantly bless you. Six jars, each one of them holding between 20 and 30 gallons, it says in the scriptures. Now, don't think that this was a drunken orgy. It wasn't. <laughs> These were, this wine would have been heavily mixed with water. It was just the thing that they drank because the, the normal water was not very good. No, no wedding party could drink 120 to, well, I don't know, maybe some, but uh, uh, 120 to 150 gallons of, of wine, that's a lot of wine. But what's the symbol? Why make so much? 
Because God does not skimp on his blessings. God wants to abundantly bless you. He wants to pour out a blessing upon you you can't even contain so that it spills out to the people around about you. That's why the abundance, that's the symbolism of the abundance here. Now let's look at verses 8 through 10. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. This would be like the the master of the ceremonies, the the type of guy who kind of made sure everything was going well. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine, the Chardonnay first, and then the ripple comes later. And then the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But here's the principle. But you, the bridegroom, Jesus, you have saved the best till now. With Jesus, the best is always saved for last. The best is yet to come. Satan always gives his best first. Satan always tempts us with temporary joy and temporary pleasure. That's the hook that he uses. But behind that, what then is to come is disappointment because he can never fulfill his promise. It is the problems, it is pain, it is destruction, and it is separation. Satan always saves his best, or excuse me, his worst to last. Jesus saves his best to last. There are some of you today that are going through some tough times. Maybe you've had some issues that have been very difficult in your life. You're not exactly sure what's happening, and you're wondering where Jesus is. And we, in uh, the, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, and we know all the problems that he went through, he says this. You know, the Apostle Paul, you know, he was beaten up. He was tarred and feathered. He was sent out of town. He was sent to, to prison and so forth. He says that I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. If you're going through tough times, I'm here to say Jesus will not leave you nor forsake you. He will be there and walk with you every step of the way, and he will bring you through, and most of all, he will bring you to fruition in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you aren't like that. Some of you are having a great time. You're healthy. You're you're wealthy. You've got everything you need in life, and you say, it can't get any better than this. Oh, yes, it can. Oh, yes, it can. Heaven is still better yet. The best is yet to come. So let's look at why he did the miracle. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. There are 35 miracles recorded in Scripture. In the Gospel of John, the author does never uses the word miracle. He uses the word sign. Signs are something which points to something else. Sign is not the reality. It points to the reality. And the reality is this. The reason that he did this was this. Even though the people were not humiliated, that was good. They had stuff to drink. That's good. But that isn't why he did it. He did it so that he would reveal his glory and his disciples would believe in it. He did it to help us build our faith. 
He revealed His glory. Well, let's see. What can we learn? There are three takeaways that I hope that you will get from this message today. And let me share these with you. This is what we can learn from this great celebration story of marriage and Cana of Galilee. Jesus wants to enter into the everyday events of our life. Jesus wants you to take him with you to your job, to your school, to be involved in your leisure activities, to be involved in your relationships, to be involved in your marriage. Jesus said, if you take me with you to every event of your life, Christianity is not an event. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ that affects everything we do. Take Jesus and invite him with you into everything that you do. Jesus wants to build our faith in him. This story, he says, was given. The miracle of this story of turning the water into wine was given to build the faith of the disciples. We know that these stories are given and that these are not the primary reason. We are the primary reason. You see, the wine eventually ran out. Everybody that he healed eventually died. Even Lazarus rose from the dead. He died again. He did that for us. He did that to show us who he was, who he is, and what he can do in our life. He does that to build our faith because faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. And finally, Jesus wants to abundantly pour out his blessings upon us. The overabundance of wine is a symbolism of the fact that Jesus wants to bless us. He wants to bless us with grace. He wants to bless us with love. He wants to bless us with His forgiveness. One of the greatest verses of Scripture is found in Isaiah 55 and 7 when He says this, I will abundantly pardon you and forgive your sins. Not partially. I will abundantly pardon you. I will pour out my blessings upon you, it says in Luke 6, so great you won't even be able to contain them. God gives abundantly, not grudgingly. His grace is unlimited. His joy is unimpeachable. His resources are endless. Here's the bottom line, and here's what I hope that you take away from you today. If we invite Jesus into every area of our life, school, work, whatever it is, marriage, family. If we invite Jesus into every area of our life, and if we do like Mary, if we say, I will do whatever you ask, if we invite Jesus into every event of our life, and we commit to doing everything that he asks us to do, our life will be filled with the abundance of his blessings. Father, we love you today. We want to build our faith by believing in you. We know what you have done for us, and we are grateful and we are thankful. We are thankful for those who are committing their lives to be baptized today. We're thankful for each one in this room that takes Jesus with them wherever they go. And we ask that you would help to build our faith that we might glorify you forever. Amen.